Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Special Army of Piety. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 23rd, 2017. This week brings the very first Sunday after Easter. But the epistle for this week catapults us a long way away from that tumultuous Holy Week in Jerusalem in terms of time, place, and people. We're not sure who wrote the epistle of 1 Peter or exactly when, but a careful reading of the letter reveals important clues about that community's life of faith. The epistle was written about 60 years after the resurrection events. The recipients of the letter were likely second-generation Christians. The very, the very first verse of the letter indicates that 1 Peter is a circular letter written to Gentile believers who lived in five Roman provinces about a thousand miles east of Rome in what is now north-central Turkey. The author writes to them from Rome, but he doesn't use the word Rome. Rather, in chapter 5, verse 13, he uses the politically provocative code word, Babylon. It's hard to think of a more derogatory epithet than the ancient empire which conquered and subjugated God's people way back in 586 BCE. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, similarly disparages Rome in chapter 17 as the great Babylon, the mother of whores and of the abominations of the earth, who is drunk with the blood of the saints. Like the author of the letter, the recipients had broken with the social fabric of their community. Or, as the New Testament scholar Joel Green puts it, First Peter is addressed to folks who do not belong, who eke out their lives on the periphery of acceptable society, whose deepest loyalties and inclinations do not line up very well with what matters most in the world in which they live. Three times First Peter characterizes the believers as strangers and aliens to Rome's paganism. He calls them a scattered people, a diaspora of believers who live a life of exile. They belonged, he said, to their own peculiar people and nation. These believers didn't conform to the social conventions of the day. First Peter describes them as maligned and reviled. Indeed, their detractors, he says, think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. We learn in chapter 4 that even the name Christian was offensive to their detractors. For some years after Jesus, Christians remained invisible to the greater Roman Empire, but across the decades, they earned a reputation as an antisocial community that lived on the fringes of society. They were considered fanatical, seditious, obstinate, and defiant. The historian Tacitus, who died in the year 117, 
called them haters of mankind. In his History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, written in 1776, Edward Gibbon argued that the success of the early Christians was based upon their intolerant zeal of Roman ways. That is, the new faith was utterly incompatible with and obstinately different from the old ways of the ancient empire. We actually have some early texts that support this oppositional paradigm, like the one by the Roman lawyer and Christian named Minuncius Felix of the early 3rd century. He wrote a dialogue between a Christian named Octavius and a pagan critic called Cecilius. Whether the dialogue is actual history or just a literary device isn't clear. What is clear, though, is that in this telling, Roman believers lived on the cultural fringes. Since the Christian sect was new and novel and couldn't claim an ancient pedigree, it was automatically suspect. Many of its adherents were unlettered and unlearned, or in Cecilius's snobbery, utter boors and yokels, ungraced by any manners or culture. In style and content, their scriptures were crude. They believed absurd doctrines like the resurrection of the body and providence. Rumors about their cannibalism, incest, and infanticide were well known. And so Cecilius complains and condescends at length. And here I quote, They despise our temples as being no more than sepulchres. They spit after our gods. They sneer at our rites. And, fantastic though it is, our priests they pity. Pitiable themselves. They scorn the purple robes of public office, though they go about in rags themselves. He continues, You do not go to our shows. You take no part in our processions. You were not present at our public banquets. You shrink in horror from our sacred games, from food ritually dedicated by our priests, from drink hallowed by libation poured upon our altars. Such is your dread of the very gods you deny. You do not bind your head with flowers. You do not honor your body with perfumes. Ointments you reserve for funerals. But even to your tombs you deny garlands. You anemic, neurotic creatures, you indeed deserve to be pitied, but by our gods. The result is, you pitiable fools, that you have no enjoyment of life, while you wait for the new life which you will never have. If you have not been privileged to understand the concerns of a citizen, you most surely have been denied discussion of the affairs of heaven. And then comes the clincher. The Christians, gripe Cecilius, quote, do not understand their civic duty. In other words, in the language of 1 Peter, they were outliers. Rome responded to Christian sedition and separatism with state persecution, sometimes sporadic and at other times by official policy. 
The first few sentences of 1 Peter described how the believers, quote, suffered grief in all kinds of trials, end quote. They shouldn't be surprised by these fiery trials, he says, as if their persecutions were strange or unexpected. Indeed, he tried to encourage them by writing, you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. It's no wonder that these believers who suffered social marginalization and political persecution felt like the end of all things is near. For some of them, it was. And thus, the writer recommends a strategy of survival. Slaves should submit to their harsh masters. Wives should submit to their unbelieving husbands. Young men should submit to older men. There was enough trouble in the world without looking for more. To make the best of a bad situation, sometimes compromise is necessary and wise. An exemplary life was the best response to charges of civic indifference and political sedition. In his treatise against Celsus, the writer Origen from the 3rd century described how Christians best served society in their own peculiar way. Listen to Origen. And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all the demons that stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when, along with righteous prayers, we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led astray by them. And none fight better for the king in his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not, indeed, fight under him, although he demands it, but we fight on his behalf, forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. In some mysterious way, enduring unjust suffering participates in the sufferings of Christ himself. And at the end of history, Peter writes, there will be a great reversal when every angel, authority, power, and human institution will itself, he says, be in submission to him. A final footnote. Two centuries after 1 Peter was written, there came a remarkable historical paradox. The greatest persecutor of the church, the Roman state, became its biggest supporter, Constantine, and the center of its ecclesiastical power, the Roman papacy. For books this week, I review a title by David Wood. It's called, What Have We Done? The Moral Injury of Our Longest Wars. New York, Little, Brown, and Company, 216 pages. 
This book is 291 pages long. And by the way, in July, we will post a Journey with Jesus conversation interview with the author, David Wood. There are about two million American veterans who have returned home from fighting our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Many of them come back with horrible physical injuries. Others, we now realize, need help with psychological injuries like PTSD. David Wood's new book examines a dark truth about war that's largely ignored and rarely addressed, much less treated, that many veterans come home with what he calls moral injuries, or wounds of the soul that are related to, but different from physical and psychological wounds. By moral injury, he means the guilt, shame, grief, sorrow, and regret that veterans experience because of what they have seen and done. The term moral injury was first coined by a VA psychiatrist named Jonathan Shea in his 1994 book, Achilles in Vietnam, Combat Trauma and the Undoing of Character. There's a glaring and deeply disturbing paradox about war. When the soldiers return home, we greet them as heroes but they themselves know that their success in war demands that they kill their fellow human beings. It's a profound and unpleasant truth, and each one of us knows it deep down. Under any circumstance, killing another human being exacts a moral cost. We send men and women into war knowing that they will collide with a moral choice no one can resolve. In order to be good soldiers, they must kill, and killing violates one of our oldest taboos. Wood has been a war reporter all over the world for 35 years. In 2012, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his series on severely wounded veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He grew up as a Quaker and during the Vietnam War spent two years as a conscientious objector in the National Civilian Service. He never judges our veterans, quite the opposite. He honors their service and the terrible burden we, who never experienced war, have asked them to bear. Drawing upon his personal experiences, the growing medical literature about moral injury, and innovative treatment programs, He's written a book that should help us all, and not just the experts, give our veterans the help that they need and deserve. Once again, the author, David Wood, the title, What Have We Done? For movies this week, I review Silence from the year 2017. As the credits begin to roll at the end of Martin Scorsese's religious drama, he dedicates his film to Japanese Christians and their pastors. The movie, which is an adaptation on Shusaku Endo's famous novel, Silence, 
recalls a very specific historical context. Christianity came to Japan on August the 15th, 1549, wherein Francis Xavier, one of the founder of the Jesuits, landed on the shores of Japan and founded the first Catholic mission in that country. For about a century, those efforts enjoyed various degrees of success, with as many as 300,000 converts, until 1650, when the so-called contagion of the Western faith was brutally expunged. Executions, crucifixion, crucifixions, sadistic tortures of all kind, prohibitions against preaching, edicts, the demolition of churches, the expulsion of missionaries, and the famous fume, in which people trampled an image of Christ to prove their renunciation of Christianity. All this ensued for 200 years. By some estimates, the Japanese exterminations of Christians were worse than the Portuguese Inquisition. When Christianity was once again tolerated in 1854, guess what? Seven generations of so-called Kakuri Krishitan, or hidden Christians, were discovered. Without any clergy, no Bible, churches, or liturgy, these mainly illiterate believers had survived by going underground and practicing their faith in secret. Scorsese's film follows Endo's novel in telling the story of two young Catholic priests, Rodriguez and Garupe, who leave Portugal for Japan to find their mentor, Fiera, who, rumor has it, has renounced the faith. They witness the unspeakable atrocities. Their presence endangers the Japanese believers. Worst of all, the Inquisitor forces Rodriguez to make a choice, renounce his own faith and save the lives of the Japanese believers, or keep his selfish dream of a Christian Japan, and so guarantee yet more and more victims in the slaughter. As a footnote, today there are an estimated 1,000 hidden Christians still living in Japan. Martin Scorsese's remarkable film about Christianity in Japan, the title is called Silence. And for the first Sunday after Easter, easily one of my all-time favorite poems by the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan. Henry Vaughan lived from 1621 to 1695. The poem is called the Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops in dews of future bliss. Hark, how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt 
Oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Henry Vaughn, The Revival. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, April 23rd, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.